This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Galton Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with conservation specialists relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. We are talking today with George Worthner, professional photographer, writer, and ecologist. George has studied wildfire ecology as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student studying with one of the major researchers who dealt with fire and climate issues. George has written more than two dozen books on various environmental topics, including several books on fire, after studying local fire regimes and literatures. His latest book is Protecting the Wild. He's a board member of a number of environmental organizations and is currently the Ecological Projects Director for Foundation for Deep Ecology. So, welcome, George. How's it going down in Bend? I'm happy to be here. Thank you, John. That's great. So, you've written a lot about wildfire, mostly in the West. Uh, You're frequently at odds with others, and uh, have you become so passionate about the subject? Well, you know, it started early in my college uh, years. I had a a botany professor who was one of the uh, early proponents of wildfire having a, an important ecological role. And uh, he was constantly making the point that our attitudes towards wildfire uh, were uh, incorrect and, and, and did not appreciate the evolutionary role of fire. So anyway, that exposure um, made it so that whenever I traveled around the West thereafter, I was always looking at fire from a different perspective than most people. And the Yellowstone fires in 1988 right. really were a trigger point for me because I had um, I was living in Livingston, Montana at the time, just north of the park, and I was going down into the park almost every day to photograph and watch the progress of the fires and the aftermath of the fires as well. And and a, a couple of key points that I learned then was almost all the um, spread of fire, in other words, the acreage burn occurred on only four days in the whole summer when the wind was blowing 50 miles an hour. And I I hadn't appreciated how key something like wind was in fire spread. So that was the first thing that I learned. The second thing I I learned, of course, was that that summer was the driest on record. So that was another factor in why there were such large fires that summer. And the uh, third factor was even with 10,000 firefighters with those kinds of conditions, in other words, extreme drought and high winds, you couldn't stop the fires. So that whole uh, watching the the events that summer really changed how I viewed wildfire and and the way we approach it. And then, of course, since that time, it's been decades now, Mm -hmm. uh, anybody who's gone to Yellowstone in the last, you know, 10, 10 years will see that a lot of cases they can hardly tell where the fire had occurred mm. because there's so much regeneration of trees all done without any uh, kind of assistance from uh, the park service. In other words, the trees regenerated themselves mm. quite, quite well. So you've been developing your expertise over, over that interim period of time. Yeah. And then, and then the other, I guess the other factors I, um, for a long time, I was a freelance writer and photographer, and I was traveling around the West, you know, constantly visiting places like national parks and 
and uh, wilderness areas and, and other public lands, uh, Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management lands. And wherever I went, I would always try to actually go look at the aftermath of a fire. And in particular, um, in the last, say, probably decade or more, that has been one of the focuses of my travel. In other words, I actually take off on a trip to go look at how, say, the Dixie Fire, which was the largest fire in California last year, right. how that burned the landscape and so forth. So I've been going out of my way to go to all these large fires across the West uh, to, to, uh, to look at them and the aftermath of the fires. So what's the principal thesis that you've advanced uh, now as a result of well, what you've done? Yeah, a, cu- a couple of things. One, it is primarily climate change that is driving large fires. And other factors that people always bring up are secondary or actually irrelevant in a lot of cases. Uh, with climate, you know, the factors that drive large fires, what we call extreme fire weather, are uh, a major drought situation, um, uh, high temperatures, low humidity, and in particular, high winds. And the reason these things are so important, like high winds is a good example, it's exponential in its effect on fire. So uh, 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 if the wind is, is blowing 10 miles an hour, you'll get a certain amount of fire spread at a certain rate. But if you make it 20 miles an hour, it doesn't just double it. It quadruples the spread. So you will look around, and if you listen to or read about any of these large fires, they always mention how there were uh, high winds. So the high winds make it impossible to, um, one, fight the fires, because firefighters are not going to risk their lives by getting in front of a a wind-blown fire. And the second thing is that most of the, quote, solutions for large fires, like thinning the fires, I mean, thinning the forests, doing prescribed burning, and other what are called fuel treatments, um, they they just fail. They don't work under those extreme fire conditions. And why that is important is the only fires we're concerned about, that is, society's concerned about, are the large ones. Uh, under more modest or moderate fire weather conditions, a lot of fires just self-extinguish. There was a study done in um, Yellowstone for a number of years before 1988. They had uh, they decided to allow fires in the backcountry to burn without any kind of suppression effort. And they had 235 uh, wildfires that occurred, and 222 of them never got bigger than a few acres, for one thing before they went out on their own and all 235 fires went out on their own. Mm. And that's because they were burning during a period of time. And this was the uh, early seventies when it was cooler and moister than at present Mm. and fires didn't spread very well. And since that time, you know, getting into the 1990s and two thousands and so forth, we've got progressively warmer temperatures across the West We're we're having really high, high heat dome right now. Uh, the uh, warm temperatures dry out any kind of vegetation much quicker. And then you throw in um, the fact that we're also getting a higher winds than in the past. So in any event, when you have those things all happen at the same time in the same place, which is in a probability point of view is not that high, but when it does happen, it becomes pretty difficult to stop a fire. And then when those conditions change, 
you'll if you read these reports again in the media, they'll say, oh, the firefighters got that fire under control after it rained or whatever. In fact, there was an amusing thing. I, I wrote a book about the Yellowstone fires, and I was doing research on it, and I was reading some of the early fire reports for the park, and one was written in the 1930s, and the, it was all on a typewriter and so forth. And mm-hmm. the fellow who wrote the report said, we, uh, well, we finally got the fire under control, had a hell of a time breaking camp in the rain, as if the two weren't related. <laughs> there was, he was taking credit for getting the fire under control, which we see all the time right. when the weather had changed. Right. And um, so it's very important to understand how much climate and weather controls uh, our fires and what we're in right now. There was a <clears throat> there was a, a extensive drought uh, called the medieval warm spell that uh, hit a lot of places uh, around the world, but it was particularly in the Western United States because, um, uh, like for example, the uh, the the Indians that had the cliff dwellings in the Southwest had to abandon them and move to the Rio Grande to have permanent water because it got too dry for them to survive in the uh, places they had lived for, for a long time because of this drought. And at that same time, it's well documented in the, any number of studies that there were major wildfires around the West. The whole Western slope of the Sierra Nevada, for example, uh, where Yosemite is at and these other parks, um, burned extensively during that time. And the conditions then are very similar to the conditions we have now. In other words, the, the major drought, the, the higher temperatures. So when people are saying, oh, we're having these major fires because there's too much fuel buildup, that is not really what the problem is. If you were to change the weather uh, or the climate conditions, we wouldn't have any fires. So you can go to like the Olympic Peninsula, you know, uh, the whole rainforest in, in Washington, mm-hmm. and that area hardly ever burns because it's cool and moist all the time, or the Tongass Forest up in Alaska. If, if, if you had weather like that across the rest of the western United States, including in California right now, you wouldn't have big fires. So it, it's really important to understand how that climate and weather controls fires. The, the Hermit Peak Fire that just was uh, in the news for about a month down in New Mexico with the largest fire in New Mexico's history. Well, well it, you don't read about it anymore. What happened? Well, the monsoon rain started. And as soon as that started, the Hermit Peak uh, fire disappeared, went out. It was self-extinguished. And uh, we, we have to realize how much this climate change is, is driving these fires. Uh, is there a difference between wildfire in different parts of the country, like uh, particularly in the forests of the east, as opposed to wildfires in the forests and grasslands of the west? Yes, there. You know, for example, Florida, the southeast in particular, but Florida in particular, um, tends to have fires in the winter months because that's the dry period, and uh, fires uh, were, are pretty common in a lot of the southeast. Uh, because they get a lot of uh, lightning. But on the other hand, you go up in the northeast, like Vermont and Maine, New Hampshire, and it is so mm, moist, uh, and the, the forests there, except in a few rare areas, are dominated by deciduous trees. And deciduous trees just uh, don't burn as well as, as uh, conifers and so forth. So uh, fire is pretty rare in the, in the northeast, um, 
Uh, it almost never happens. Again, oh, if you have the right conditions, drought, and so forth, and, and, and get ignitions, you can have some major fires. But on the whole, that area doesn't burn much compared to the West. So who are the, who are the parties that you're, uh, you're constantly contending with? Are they politicians or lumber company officials? Uh, who? Well, it, it, it's, well, you have to follow the money is what I say, and that's sort of what you're implying even with your question. Uh, certainly timber companies have been selling this idea that if we would only log the fire, uh, forest, we wouldn't have large fires. Uh, and, and, and the irony of that is you can go, uh, the, the research shows that the, the highest severity fires are on private timberlands where you have the most, quote, active forest management. And, uh, for example, the Holiday Farm Fire, which was uh, burned on the west slope of the Cascades along the Mackenzie River uh, near Eugene, Oregon, uh, Labor Day weekend number a couple of years ago, um, burned primarily through private industrial timberlands with clear cuts all over the place. And it had no effect on that fire spread. In fact, some would argue, and some of the research suggests it actually enhanced fire spread. Uh, another group that's of course, has a stake in this, is the Forest Service itself. And the reason the Forest Service has a, a stake in selling this idea that they can prevent large fires by logging and other manipulations is that's how they increase their budgets. Um, and I think there's a certain amount of, um, how shall I say, they want, they want to avoid the idea of liability. Uh, if you're a district ranger or a forest supervisor, and uh, you have an opportunity to do a thinning project, uh, you do it even though in a lot of cases that doesn't do anything to affect uh, or slow the, the spread of a fire. But if, a, if, you, if you do it and a fire overruns the thin site, you say, well, I did my best. And if you didn't do it, then there might be a lot of finger pointing saying, why didn't you try to stop the fire by logging the, the area? So they have an incentive to also advocate for this. And then there's a third group, which is a lot of um, what I would call professors in forestry schools uh, and other researchers who get most of their funding or some of their funding from the timber industry and the Forest Service. So, for example, the Oregon State Forestry School uh, gets something like 20 to 25 percent of its funding from the timber industry. So naturally, if you're a professor there, uh, you, you understand that you, you can't directly contradict what the timber industry says about things, or you might jeopardize funding for the department or for your graduate students and so forth. So there's all these incentives to promote this idea that um, logging and prescribed burning and so forth is the solution, when more and more the evidence uh, is occurring showing that that actually doesn't work and often exacerbates uh, fire spread by opening the forest to wind penetration, again, because wind is such an important part of fire spread, and drying out fuels, which is another uh, thing that helps to uh, spread fires. And a third thing, too, it's interesting, is even logging roads um, become vectors for drying fuels because they, they're these corridors in what would otherwise be a shady forest uh, that dries out and it often uh, spreads weeds uh, along the edge of the logging roads, which um, is the fine fuels that 
fires spread on. And that's another important point, if I can get to it right now before I forget it, which is what does burn in a forest fire? It's not the forest. It's, uh, it's an irony. I mean, that's why you have all these snags left after uh, a fire. What is burning is what we call the fine fuels, the grasses, the shrubs, the, the small branches, the pine cones, etc. And that is why uh, going into a forest situation and taking out big trees uh, is likely not to uh, significantly affect fire uh, spread because it's, the big trees don't burn anyway. Uh, it's the branches on the trees that burn and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the other part of this, too, that's important to understand, uh, and I can get into more detail about this, but I want to mention it now, is that the, the snag forests that result from a major fire, what we call a high-severity fire where a lot of trees are killed, is some of the most important wildlife habitat in the West. There are studies that suggest the second-highest biodiversity you get is in the snag forests that result after a high-severity fire. So just from an ecological point of view, in other words, if your your goal is to preserve biodiversity, you have to accept the fact that high-severity fires are an important part of maintaining that biodiversity. So um, does the kind of forest determine uh, how susceptible it is to, to fire spreading through it? The kind of... Uh, sure. There, or, yeah, there, there's, there's a couple of things to consider. One is um, how, uh, how, how wet or normally um, uh, cool... Uh, a, far, a particular type of forest might be. So higher elevation forests in general, like local pine forests, subalpine fir, uh, fir forests around the West, uh, tend to burn less frequently than lower elevation, uh, drier forests, like, say, ponderosa pine. But even really dry places, like sagebrush landscapes, uh, juniper pinion forests, don't burn very frequently. And that is another misconception that's out there. There, There's this whole sort of narrative that uh, prior to modern forestry uh, attempts to suppress fires, that fires were, were frequent across the West in all landscapes and vegetation types. And in fact, uh, the majority of vegetation types across the West Uh, did not burn very frequently, often hundreds of years between any major fire. So um, that's that's one of the things driving forest management that's based on misinformation. So, for example, as I mentioned, uh, I also uh, uh, would would put into the areas that don't burn frequently would be like aspen forests, chaparral uh, landscapes, uh, the... uh, uh, the things like western red cedar and hemlock forest. Uh, there are all kinds of forest types that just do not burn very frequently at all. And they, um, they not, and when they do burn, and this is the important point, it is natural for them to burn at higher severity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, that is the normal way they would, would burn as well. So apart from, uh, human causes, uh, is there a natural way for fires to start other than uh, by being struck by lightning? Um, most 
almost all natural fires started naturally are by lightning. Although, you know, you can have something like, um, you know, a coal seam that might be burning, uh, that catches on fire somehow, uh, and, and, and will ignite fires. Uh, you know, volcanic eruptions, of course, obviously are spitting out all sorts of, of hot rocks that could start fires. Uh, but, uh, across the West, the, the major natural way of starting fires is through lighting. But the irony is that the majority of fires across the West, uh, particularly in places like California, are started by humans. And um, sometimes on purpose, of course, with the arsonists, but a lot of it's accidental and sometimes almost um, unpredictable. For example, the car fire, which burned a huge area around um, – uh, Redding, California, a few years ago was started because a guy got a flat tire towing t- an RV trailer, mm. and uh, and in pulling over on the side of the road, there were sparks from the rim uh, or chain maybe dragging. I'm not sure exactly what, but anyway, sparks uh, from metal hitting rocks that ignited the fire. Mm. Uh, who could have predicted that? Um, another major source of fires from humans is when trees fall on power lines. And, and the interesting thing about that, or the irony of that, is um, the, the trees are most likely to be blown over in high winds. So, of course, if you have the power line uh, toppled by a tree, uh, you already have the right conditions for rapid fire spread. I believe the fire that uh, the campfire that burned through Paradise, California, was started by a tree on a, uh, or, or perhaps maybe the wind just causing a, a power line to come loose. But in any event, it was caused by a power line, uh, and, and the winds were blowing exceptionally high, and the rate of spread of that fire was just absolutely amazing, about one football field a second. Hmm. Uh, so is there anything that can be done to uh, minimize the risk of fire breaking out in, in fire-prone areas, uh, such as is there any way to attract lightning to particular points uh, apart from the forest itself? Um, well, I think, I think the, the, the main thing that can be, there are a couple of things that we can do. One is uh, there's this whole thing called the wildlands urban interface, which is where uh, people are building homes outside of sort of the boundaries, established boundaries of cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the cabin in the woods or the subdivision that's up a, uh, a side canyon near a city, those kinds of uh, homes are, of course, very vulnerable to fires. But the second thing that happens is then you've got power lines up there. You've got people driving on the roads and, and uh, or burning brush in their backyard or, or things like that that will can start a fire. So the more construction you have outside of established cities and places like that, the higher the likelihood you will have a fire. Um, the other part of that is um, it also becomes harder for firefighters to protect those things because if you've got just a single house up some canyon or a couple of houses uh, and they're trying to fight a major fire, they, they just they, they take resources away from that fire uh, to try to protect those homes. And it's very costly in terms of... Uh, human resources because they're spread all over instead of an effective uh, force fighting the fire. And, of course, adds to the risk to the firefighters as well. And and another um, problem is what you build your homes out of and how what you have around your homes. 
So there is a lot of research that shows if you uh, do what's called home hardening, uh, think about what, what would burn on your house. If you have wooden shingles on your roof and you live in a dry forested area, you're looking for trouble if there's a fire that starts because an ember uh, can land on your roof or, say, among pine needles or something, and then that will uh, burn your house down. Uh, so uh, thinking about how your house is built, what it's built out of, um, can make a big difference. There's research that shows that it takes almost 30 minutes of exposure to a flame to burn uh, to start a wall, a wooden wall burning, like on the uh, side of a house. But there's, you know, if, if you have firewood right against the house and a fire gets started in the firewood, that provides a source to then get the wall burning and the house will burn down. So if you think about things like that. Do I have firewood against the house? Do I have flammable vegetation next to the house that could burn and hold a flame for a while? Uh, do I have pine needles in the gutter? Do I have um, vents that are um, that an ember could get into inside the house if the wind is blowing embers, uh, if they're on screen? So there are things that you can do to protect houses. Now, another thing that I think is very important, and there's various uh, emergencies that uh, plans that communities have undertaken, but that is is to plan uh, for what do you do if you do have a, a fire? Uh, how do you get people uh, to safety? Um, one of the things that was learned with the campfire in paradise is they had a plan which uh, depended upon sending word to people via their cell phones that it was time to evacuate. One of the problems with that plan is the fire spread so quickly, it, it knocked out most of the cell towers in the area. And so they couldn't send the uh, evacuation notices to people. Uh, so trying to plan, how are you going to get people out of that town and, and, and get to safety? Uh, in Bend, Oregon, where I live part-time, um, there are five or six bridges that cross the Deschutes River, and half the population lives on the western side of that of those bridges. And mm -hmm. if we have a fire here, it's probably going to come from the West. That's the typical direction. Mm -hmm. And if you had to get half of Ben's population across those bridges in an hour or so, I can guarantee you it's not going to happen. So you have people running out of gas, abandoning their cars, panicking, fire all around them. It could be a real disaster very quickly. Uh, I don't know if the emergency folks here have done planning to, to deal with that, but one of the things that I would suggest is that you actually have fire drills like when I was in elementary school uh, where, you know, you, you sound a siren or something like that and you practice. How do you, how do you efficiently get people to move uh, across these bridges and get to safety? Right. Well, George, I think we've run out of time, but I'd like to continue this. Uh, so if we could if we could follow it up with a with another interview, I'd uh, like to uh, like to go on and uh, ask a lot more questions. So uh, thanks very much, and uh, yeah. let's let's get together uh, next week. Our guest today is George Worthner, professional photographer, ecologist, author of several books about wildfire and other subjects relating to the natural environment. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife 
a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to kgvm.com or to our website at js-wilderness.com to see additional features. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.